Hello, me too. Hi, Mark. How are you? I'm good, even though it's election day, and I'm I sh- I should not be looking forward to what's going to happen at the end of the day. I don't think it's going to be good, uh, but. I've been so looking forward to this particular podcast episode that it is enabling me to put thoughts of likely election results out of my head. That's more or less where I am. I am instituting a news blackout for, I'm guessing, about the next 40 years. So that will help maintain my sanity, as will talking about um, an interesting question that you and I have been uh, I think informally chatting about for a while, but we thought it would be a good subject for a podcast, uh, in part because it raises some interesting questions about how we should think of sovereign bonds as contracts. And I've been thinking about it in the context of some of Pakistan's bonds. And, and I'm I know you've been thinking about it in that and some other contexts too, but let me set up the problem really quickly. And then maybe you can tell me why you find it so interesting. But here's the the problem that I see or the the sort of interesting observation about the way these sovereign debt markets work. So, um, you know, if I'm a, an investor or I'm a prospective investor and I'm thinking about buying a country's bonds, I get a prospectus or some other sales document ahead of time. And that prospectus describes, or maybe if I'm lucky, it actually reprints some of the key terms and conditions that are going to apply to the bond I'm thinking about buying. But there's always some other agreement out there, some other source of uh, terms that define my legal rights. Often it might be a fiscal agency agreement. I'm, I'm going to call it a fiscal agency agreement. It could be something else, but but that's a good enough um, uh, a good enough example. And the way I understand these issuances to work is nobody is willing to show me the fiscal agency agreement. I can't get it even if I even if I beg and squeal, even if I'm a a very prominent investor or their lawyer, I can't call up the issuer or the fiscal agent or any of the other uh, financial institutions that are involved. And I I can't say, hey, give me a copy of the fiscal agency agreement. I need to review this thing so that I understand the terms and conditions that are going to govern the bond. So here's how I've been looking at the Pakistan 2024 bond. And this is what the prospectus says there. The statements in these conditions include summaries of and are subject to the detailed provisions of and definitions in the agency agreement. Copies of the agency agreement are available during normal business hours by the holders of the notes at the specified office of the paying agent, which is kind of funny, right? I have to physically go to a place to look at the document. And if I'm not already a holder of the notes, they're going to turn me away. So um, me too, I think this raises all kinds of interesting questions just about sovereign bonds as contracts you know, in in my contracts class, and I'm sure yours, we see 
these inquiry notice cases. They're often internet cases where the question is, you know, when are you treated as if you know the content of some terms and conditions when those terms are not directly presented to you? And we also see these cases involving later arriving terms, you know, where you agree to enter into a contract and then they send you the terms later. And so this seems like a pretty funky, high stakes example of those kinds of problems. And and it was interesting to me for that reason. But uh, I'm wondering if you have a similar reaction or if you see other interesting things in this way of of forming a contract. So, I I mean, I I find this fascinating, but I think that you and I have been irritated about the lack of availability of the contract terms for anything but the SEC registered sovereign offerings where the SEC actually requires you to have them available, but that's only a small subset of all sovereign issuances. And for the others, we've never been able to actually get our hands on the fiscal agency agreements or the indentures unless somebody in the business exerts the effort to get it and then shares it with us. And so those are two steps that it's often hard to satisfy. And when we're teaching our classes, you know, we're, we're stuck giving our students the prospectuses that have nothing but prospectuses or offering circulars that have nothing but the summary of terms. And, and that's, that's, that just has been irritating and we have complained about it on credit slips. But until this year, and maybe a few weeks ago when we were talking about either Pakistan or Suriname, and you asked the question, does the lack of availability of these terms until you are you have already purchased the instrument make it less of a contract and so let me uh, add a couple of facts to what you described or at least nuances because i think you you did a fantastic job of describing the context so i am an investor i can't get the contract until I buy the security. So uh, presumably I call my broker and uh, my broker uh, says, sure, you can buy, you know, $300,000 worth of Suriname bonds. Uh, I'll deduct it from your bank account with your authorization. And then I have a, a denotation in my account that I have uh, X number of Surinamese bonds. And then my broker can send me the offering circular, or I can just pull up the offering circular from one of the databases from Bloomberg, presumably. If I'm a rich investor, I have access to Bloomberg. But I, I cannot get the damn underlying contracts. And usually there's not just the fiscal agency agreement or indenture. There's usually a half dozen associated multiple hundred page long documents that you would want that form part of this apparatus. I can't get any of that 
until I've become a holder. And then in some of these, and, and you read it to us, I have to go to fucking Luxembourg and go to the office of the paying agent and then maybe wait in line until they open because in Luxembourg, like nobody works more than four hours a day. Okay, maybe that's an exaggeration, but they're, they're, they seem rather leisurely over there. I have to wait in line, then I go in. And what I've heard is that sometimes they don't even let you make a copy of the damn document. You have to go there and you have to read it and remember it and then leave and maybe immediately write it all down. And that's how you know what your contract terms are. This is unlike any other contracting situation that I've ever heard about. So there are these old cases, now old, although I remember when I first saw them, I thought they were kind of cool and new, uh, primarily these uh, Judge Easterbrook decisions I think we teach different ones, a pro CD and a, a gateway where you had sales of technology products. Again, gateway was a computer and you buy the product, give your credit card, you buy the product and then you get a box and the box has terms in it. And there people were all like, oh my goodness, you, you've got the, you got the terms later, that's outrageous. But in those situations, you could always return the box, uh, you return the computer if you didn't like the terms, and you could ask to see the terms beforehand. Here we have these financial products that explicitly tell you you can't see the terms until afterwards. And even then they make it really onerous to see the terms. And so is this a contract? I mean, that's that that's that's that seems to be the question that I've always assumed, it of course, it was a contract. But now I'm thinking, how, how can it be a contract if you can't even see it until you entered into the contract? That's not contract. Well, I mean, it's interesting. And I think maybe the, the right way to think about it, at least, uh, at least as I think about it, is not whether there's a contract at all. And I, and I don't take you to be casting any doubt on that. It's whether these terms, these undisclosed terms, are part of the contract, or whether the contract is instead formed in some uh, some other way, presumably including only the terms that are actually disclosed uh, to the investor in advance, which would kind of make the the prospectus itself, the contract, which doesn't make a whole lot of sense, I don't think, especially since many of them are quite clear that they're just describing the terms. They're not even attempting to reprint them. So it's all sort of a giant puzzle. But I think to, to, my, to my mind, the, the context where it really matters is one where there's something unpleasant from the perspective of the investor in the fiscal agency agreement that was not there in the the prospectus's description of the terms of the bonds. And so I've seen, just as an example, I've seen language that limits the scope of a waiver of sovereign immunity in a fiscal agency agreement that was not there in the prospectus. So I could see, just to provide maybe a concrete context here, I could see that 
being quite an unpleasant surprise for an investor. And we were just talking not that long ago about the the voting provisions for modifying uh, this Pakistan 2024 bond. At least I think that was the bond. Now, now it's escaping me. And how the the contract itself seems to have this really weird provision about we're going to count votes cast rather than counting the votes by the size of an investor's holdings. And so presumably the underlying agency agreement says something about that. And, you know, you could have a an investor who thinks that the there's been a bait and switch here, right? So I guess the question is, which terms do they get to rely on and which are part of the contracts, the ones that are disclosed ahead of time and the ones that are, or the ones that are only disclosed after they decide to commit? So can we, maybe we can, you raised a bunch of possibilities that all seem highly relevant, but maybe we can go in sequence or logical sequence. And so the the first question that you raised was, are the terms only the ones that you can get at the start? So I am buying Pakistani bonds and the only terms that I can get, and, and with the caveat, I'm assuming you can get them with your Bloomberg subscription. So we're assuming some level of sophistication. One could say, look, I'm only bound by the terms that are available at the time, even though those terms say there's this mythical document somewhere else. So I'm not, I got the impression from what you said you didn't think that that could be the full contract. Well, I think, I guess what I was saying is that not that I don't think that the law could treat it as the full contract, because I think the fact that we're having this discussion is in part because both of us think the law could potentially treat the uh, the prospectus and any other documents that are made available in advance as setting the terms of the contract. What I meant to say is, I don't think anyone really understands it that way. And I don't think it, most prospectuses are not written in a way that makes that inference easy to get to, because most of them, first of all, tell you there are other terms out there, even if you can't get them. And some of them make quite clear that they themselves, that the prospectus itself is not actually presenting you with the terms. It's just giving you a summary of what they are. So what what happened? So you're exactly right that, that many of them just say, look, this is just a summary of the key terms. Uh, sometimes they say, this is the text of a subset of the key terms. So they're saying, this is not the contract. So logically, it's hard to say that's the contract. But then what is the contract? Because I'm buying the product. I'm entering into the contract. I just don't know what the contract is. And, And to be perfectly honest, I don't, most of these investors don't care what the, don't seem to care what the contract is. So if you 
if you don't care what the contract is and it's not made available to you, in part, maybe because you their assumption is nobody cares what the contract is till the whole thing blows up, then can you be bound to just any random set of terms or can you be bound only to the standard set of terms? So, so I think this is really, this is a really interesting question and it adds a complication to it. To my mind, it is certainly no protection to investors that they don't care. And in fact, if the terms are reasonably available to them, then they're going to be treated as if they are bound by those terms, whether they care or not. I think you know, contract law supports that conclusion quite nicely. The difficulty here, so the you mentioned the opinions by Judge Easterbrook, which I think are maybe a kind of both of us are reaching for those as the right analogy here. So in in those cases, ProCD is the one I teach. So basically you go into a back when there were retail software stores, you know, you go into the store and you buy a box and the box says on the outside, hey, there are some terms and conditions inside the box. And you know, you buy the box, you've already acquired the software, and then you get home and you discover these terms and conditions. And the question in those cases is, in effect, are you bound by the, the terms and conditions? And, you know, Easterbrook basically says, yeah, sure, of course you are. But he makes a point of noting that the buyer in that context has a right of return. So basically, the contract is formed in his view when you have the opportunity to review these terms and then you do not elect to return the box. So I think that's the analogy here, right? Is that investors buy the bond, they know there are these other terms out there, although you can't read them, just like presumably you're not supposed to rip open the box in the middle of the store. And then they have an opportunity so after what looks like the moment of contract formation, they have an opportunity to go find out the terms. And, and you know, the fact that they don't bother to exercise that opportunity doesn't protect them. But what might protect them is that you can't return the bond, right? Like <laughs> you can sell it to some doofus who's lazier than you and who doesn't know that there's something kind of odious hidden in the the fiscal agency agreement, but surely that's not a sufficient exit option, is it? So I, I, I don't. So if we were to rewind time to when those cases Gateway and ProCD were written, I think it's it's over two decades ago. It, my students have no clue uh, about gateway computers. I, I, they've never even heard of them, but they were so important <laughs> in my my growing up. But in in those cases, my memory is very much yours, with the additional fact that for Easterbrook to make his move, and it's a move that really changed contract law, he makes the move one that you articulated where he says, 
you can return the product. You look, you look at the terms and the terms say something onerous that you're not, you don't like. And if I remember correctly in, in ProCD, you couldn't use uh, the software for commercial purposes and the purchaser wanted to use it. And you can, re you can return it. Um, but the other point that he made in Gateway was that you could ask for the terms if you really wanted to know, and they would have to send it to you. Of course, they would have to send it to you, Easterbrook seems to say. And then he makes the leap of saying, all right, so fine, you're bound by the contract, even if you get it later, because you could get it earlier and you could return the product. This fact scenario that we are describing has neither of those uh, protections. You can't return the damn thing because of course the price will have changed. And if you could return it, it would undermine the entire market. And you can't ask for it ahead of time explicitly. I mean, you can barely get it after the fact. I mean, one of my uh, friends, uh, actually one of our former students was saying, <laughs> even though he's one of the lawyers or one of the countries or either that, or he's representing the investors, he couldn't get it from the paying agent until he got some like convoluted uh, permission uh, in writing from the investors saying that he represented them. And then he had, they, had, they had to send somebody to Luxembourg to get the damn thing. And then it was not clear they could actually get a copy. They had to like sit there and read the damn thing. I mean, this, this is just... This is, it doesn't have any of the protections that were key to Easterbrook making his leap. And yet, I am hesitant to say that this would be held to not be the contract. I am too. I think it's almost certainly, um, almost certainly that it would be treated as the contract. I just can't figure out why that would be other than mere convenience. So I do I do think it's different to invoke when an investor invokes provisions of the fiscal agency agreement against the government. I think that's quite a different scenario. And we often see that. In fact, one of the ways you and I sometimes get our hands on these agreements is they're attached as exhibits to a complaint when an investor has decided to sue the government for default or, or something like that. And whenever I learn of a new lawsuit, I'm like, oh, yippee, I, I need to go on Pacer or Bloomberg Law, and I need to scour the docket because there's probably going to be a fiscal agency agreement attached. And you know, the government's not in a very good position to to dispute that it's bound by those terms. But you know, I I've never seen this happen in the the real world. Maybe it's quite rare, but I do sometimes see language in the fiscal agency agreement that is less favorable to investors or that's at least different in a way that might matter to an investor. Um and I, I like you my intuition is a court would say no I'm sorry you're bound by the terms of the fiscal agency agreement. I just don't I don't exactly understand how you get there under contract law. Yeah, I mean, we should, for all two of the people who are listening to this, I think that there's a very important implication here that 
we haven't made explicit, which is normally when you're talking about these financial contracts vis-a-vis the offering document, which is typically all that investors look at if they look at anything. And most investors I know don't look at anything. Which they don't. That's right. <laughs> but let's say they, they look at the offering document. One of the things we tell our students in, in any class where you look at these is that the offering document is not the contract. And that, in fact, at, when they are lawyers, they are committing malpractice if all that they look at is the offering document. And we say this even though we know that our students, when they go into practice, if they are just like we were, will only look at the offering document because they can't get their hands on the damn contract and nobody will have it. But I am wondering whether the implication of our conversation here, if anybody actually brought it up in court, which why wouldn't they, is that the offering document becomes a hell of a lot more important, if not the most important document, in a context in which you can't get the underlying terms until later, and particularly in a context in which the underlying terms are much worse for the party who can't get them, meaning the investor. So that this seems really, uh, the implications here seem big to me, Mark. I mean, I, I, I'm embarrassed that we've been working on these documents for two decades now, and we have been irritated by the lack of contracts for almost that entire time. And we're not the only ones irritated. I don't actually know a single, a single senior lawyer in the sovereign debt business who doesn't find this irritating, bizarre, antiquated. This seems to be some antiquated process about how you have to go to the paying agent and like read the physical document there. No logic behind it. The implications for for what is the contract seem big. Uh, but what would a judge do or what would I mean, it's kind of, uh, you know, I I could ask two questions. One is, what would Judge Frank Easterbrook do? And two, what would the garden variety judge do? Well, I mean, on this point, you know, it's for Easterbrook's opinions were much more willing to accept that these later arriving terms would become part of the contract than some of the the other courts that had decided those cases. So, you know, the certainly there's plenty of authority out there for the proposition that if nobody will make the terms available to you beforehand, the terms don't become part of the agreement. I think, to, to my mind, what makes this problem even more complicated is that you and I both are very familiar with the haphazard way that prospectuses and offering circulars sometimes get produced. We've seen people in a New York law issuance somehow start with English law forms and incorporate a bunch of 
bizarre terms, at least bizarre for the New York market, into uh, into the issuance just because it looks like someone started with the wrong form. We've seen important words like not be omitted from prospectus language, completely, you know, 180 degree changing the meaning of the term. So, you know, that I think when I first got interested in those kinds of things, my frustration with not being able to get the the underlying contracts was really a frustration at all the mistakes that I see in the prospectuses and trying to figure out what the contract says. And if I can't rely on the prospectus, then I'm out of luck. But now I'm worried if all of these mistakes might not actually be changing the terms of the contract in some scenarios. Anyway, that's a this is no way for a market to function. <laughs> it is not. It, it, it's okay. Let me can I ask you a further question on this? Like to, to put put this in the Easterbrookian context because Easterbrook saw further 20 years ago. I mean, he was so heavily criticized for his opinions uh, as being as just completely undermining contract law and all these fancy law professors yelled and screamed about how Easterbrook was just being unlawful. 20 years later, whatever he said has become the law. So he just saw further. He understood the needs of the market. He understood the needs of modern commerce. The difference here is, and I think Easterbrook would throw the book at these people, the difference here is the reason for denying people access to the contract is not that this is how commerce would operate more effectively. Like this seems to be the product of some like historical happenstance that they would put the contract in Luxembourg. I mean, why in Luxembourg of all places and then not allow anybody to see it? And I'm reading now, I have in front of me the portion of the Suriname document that tells me where I can get the underlying indenture. And it's it says it's it's less clear than the Pakistan one. Copies of the following documents, meaning indenture and the governmental authorizations, may be obtained on a business day at the office of the paying agent at Luxembourg so long as any of the notes are listed on the Luxembourg Stock Exchange. And then these geniuses, they don't put a phone number. They don't put a website, a web link. There, There's no, no information on how I could contact anybody at these places. And every year I tell my students, that you know, in order to analyze the questions that I've posed to them, uh, they need to find the indenture. And so then the poor students, they're like chasing around trying to find who the paying agent is because the damn thing doesn't even tell you clearly who the paying agent is. Then trying to call them, trying sometimes trying to get their friends in Luxembourg to try and go to this office and get it. And of course, they just hit brick wall after brick wall after brick wall. And then I try to say something wise at the end about, oh, this is just what the nature of modern practice. And in fact, what I should be saying is you need to challenge this. This is like, this is not a contract. If you make it this onerous and there's no logical reason for it, nobody's going to hold this idiocy. 
Yeah. So let's let I let me give an example. Although maybe I'll begin by saying, you know, um, I think a lot of people just to go back to Easterbrook, a lot of people would uh, question whether he really understood the market, or rather whether he just declared that he understood the market and mistook the way it operated for the way it needed to operate. But in any event, le- leaving that point aside, so here's the scenario that that kind of leaps to my mind. Let's say that I, I have a judgment. I, I'm an investor. There's been a default. I've sued. We've probably by now already worked out these issues, but let's leave that aside. I've sued and I'm trying to seize a particular asset. I'm trying to attach a particular asset to enforce my judgment. And it turns out, let's say this asset is sort of fits within the scope of the waiver of the sovereign's execution immunity that appears in the prospectus. But there's a an exemption for it in the underlying agency agreement. I've seen cases where this could happen. So basically my argument as the an investor is, no, you waived your immunity with regard to this asset. Look, it says so in the prospectus. And the government might respond, no dummy, the contract is the fiscal agency agreement and the fiscal agency agreement has an exemption for assets like this. Now, I could say, well, you if that's true, you defrauded me, right? You, there's a material misstatement in the prospectus. That doesn't help me, right? That gets me a, you know, either rescission of the contract or maybe a claim for damages. I, I That doesn't do me any good. I need the waiver of immunity in the prospectus to be the terms of my contract. I think I actually, I might have a pretty good argument there. Is my Is my example clear? Like, I think if I go to a court and I say, look, judge, here's a commercial asset. I've seized it. Their prospectus says they waive all immunity with regard to assets like this. Now they want to pull out some some exclusion in a document that they would never show to me uh, before uh, I made the decision to invest. I don't know. I think there's a chance a court would buy that. I think a court would buy it. I mean, I'm actually astonished that nobody has made this argument before. We have all for decades in this litigation assumed that the contract is the indenture or the fiscal agency agreement and that you're just an idiot for not getting it ahead of time. In fact, I think the idiots are the ones like me who didn't realize there's a really good argument to be made that what should govern is the language in the sales document if the other stuff that deviates from it is not made available. Uh, I don't know. I mean, given that this is not harming commerce, this would actually make it better. Like, how difficult is it to just put in a link with the contract available? There is no no value added from keeping this stuff secret. Instead, there is lots of harm. And the only reason that they're doing it, best I can tell, is because that's how they've always done it. This is, yeah. I mean, I think if you if the argument is made properly, it is hard for me to see how you wouldn't win. And I had always assumed you would lose on an argument like this. 
I mean, the, so it, maybe they don't even have to be quite so generous. Maybe they can just extend the same rule to everybody, which is to say, if you travel to Luxembourg and you wait in line and you're willing to, you know, peek in the filing cabinet, you can see the contract beforehand. I mean, that would at least weed out the sort of riffraff, as it were. And the fact that you, I mean, typically these investments I, no, have to we be- we are the riffraff. Uh, yeah, but typically these investments have to be at least in hundreds of thousands of dollars, right? Um, uh, so I would imagine a court might find it sufficient to- as long as you just let people physically access the document, even under pretty restrictive circumstances like that. So I guess I don't understand, since it seems like you could protect some of the secrecy they seem to want uh, without running these contract risks. It's odd to me that at least they don't have this symmetry. I, I would like uh, if I'm a prospective buyer, I want to be, at least be able to go to Luxembourg and look in the filing cabinet. And I, and I don't get why I don't have at least that right. Agreed completely. Can I ask uh, one last question? I, I realize we're we're almost at the end of our time and we, we want to be on Liana's good side. At least for me, the, the, the one variant on this that I'm curious about, in part because... I recently heard this argument being made in uh, an ongoing litigation, which is the question of whether one could argue that the terms one should be bound for, bound to, are the terms that were standard or the terms you thought would be reasonable instead of either the terms in the offering circular or the fiscal agency agreement. And the the reason I'm asking about this is because, as we said at the beginning, the offering circular explicitly says this is not the contract. So it seems a little weird, and you pointed this out right at the start, seems a little weird to say that's the contract term. And then the actual contract can't get And so in some ways, they seem to knock each other out. And so then all we've left with are default rules. And the default rules in such a bond don't come from the UCC or state law. If you actually look for default rules, presumably they would just be what is the standard set of terms that you would expect here is that is that a bridge too far yeah i think it's i think it's like eight bridges too far but <laughs> for a, for a variety of reasons i mean that's it is true that sort of the market standard terms are one way courts could fill a gap in an agreement but no court says that the set of default rules that's out there to f- to to um define the entirety of your contract come from you know what we deem to be standard the you know the you've got to at least have a contract that's sufficiently definite on its own to uh, to be enforced but here that the bigger issue is that the prospectus may not 
be the contract itself, but it is telling you, here is the description of what your rights are. And so you can't import some market standard term unless at a minimum it's consistent with that description. Otherwise, the whole thing would be based on just an endless series of misstatements, misrepresentations in the prospectus. And so it doesn't, we can't use the import market terms or any other default rule in a way that conflict with what the prospectus says. That makes no sense at all. Like the prospectus may not be the contract, but it sure as hell is describing what the contract is. And those are, if nothing else, representations of fact. And the investors got to be able to rely on those representations. I I, I fully agree. I, I think that, that the significant implication of this right now is that if you are an issuer, you want to avoid all of this legal morass and you you want to ask the paying agent to put up a website making these documents available i i don't i would think it would be just completely stupid not to do so but then this is also my self-interest in that i would like to see the documents and it, it just it cannot be that like these things are state secrets when they're just they're stupid documents that the state itself doesn't know what it says. And uh, but the legal the, the legal implications are are very interesting. Shall I we agree. wrap? I agree that they are interesting, and I agree that we shall wrap because I am I have certainly not added any clarity up to this point, and if I haven't done it yet, it's not going to happen soon. So good time to end. <laughs> I think you are being unfair. You have added clarity in the sense that uh, this is a legal issue. It's not just an issue of being irritated by an antiquated practice. It's a place where the antiquated practice could hurt the parties involved in these transactions. And the only people who are going to gain are the lawyers who have one more thing to litigate over. Yay. Yay, lawyers. More work for lawyers. <laughs> All right, let's wrap. 